This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the Black Lives Matter period of confrontations with the cops may have petered out in much of the country, but the movement against police oppression is alive and well in New York City. And a new book explores the interaction between U.S. suppression of minorities at home and American military policy abroad. But first, the FBI claims that it has revised its policy on targeting so-called black identity extremists. However, many observers doubt that, including Yafeo Balagon a leader of the Dallas, Texas-based Huey P. Newton Gun Club. The club urges black people to arm themselves for self-defense. The political inspiration for the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, of course, is the founding of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Of course, Huey is an inspiration. I chose the name Huey simply because of Huey's political analysis as it relates to struggle, as it relates to revolution, as it relates to the people's development here in the United States and around the world. Locally, I think that some of our inspiration comes from the local members of the Black Panther Party. Akintunde Fonzo, Fahim Minka, who was the uh, statewide representative of the Black Panther Party, uh, those gentlemen, uh, had come together in team of inspiration, mentorship, and what we call OG-ship, come together and kind of sat us down and kind of laid the foundation. So it's in their spirit that we organized the UEP Newton Gun Club and also in coalition with what was going on here locally in the city of Dallas as it relates to struggle against police brutality. What kind of attention has the gun club gotten from the law enforcement apparatus in Dallas and Texas and the national lawmen? Well, of course, we've gotten a lot of attention um, as it relates to dealing with police. Uh, Here in Dallas, Texas, we could uh, hardly organize without bringing attention to the Dallas Police Department, SWAT teams, etc. I can remember on a a number of different occasions of organizing and planning to do uh, these armed demonstrations, which ultimately was not really about the gun per se. It was more or less about bringing awareness around black people's ability to arm themselves legally. And of course, any time that we had planned any particular demonstration, uh, the police would always uh, be somewhere in the midst, whether it be a helicopter flying in the air whether it be uh, a multitude of lawmen around, of course, uh, they were always present. Uh, second to that, of course, my comrade, my friend, my brother, Rakim Balagoon, of course, was targeted by the FBI and was arrested on December 12, 2017. Basically, his door was kicked in by the FBI, the ATF, all the alphabet boys basically came in, kicked down his door, and had him and his son, who was 15 years old at the time, basically naked outside in 40-degree weather 
in Dallas, Texas. And this type of attention um, we have noticed since then, of course, had been going on for a little more than uh, three years. And they had been observing, monitoring, and trying to figure out which was the best way to attack us. And, of course, they chose that particular time. Um, we think that uh, this harassment uh, by the Dallas police, the FBI, the ATF, anybody is, of course, unwarranted because we've always maintained discipline. We've all, always maintained a sense of legality, and we always fought for what was in the best interest of the people, which is bringing an understanding about Second Amendment rights and also just a, a position where the people understand that they can defend themselves. Yes, the FBI denies it, but it's widely believed that the first designated black identity extremist group by the FBI was you guys. Most definitely, most definitely. The FBI came to my job on two different occasions that same year. They had been trying to figure out how to best to get us. Of course, they were intimidating myself, Rakim, other people trying to, you know, basically put us in a position where they can lock us up, basically try to get us in a position where they could interview us and have us tell them a lie, per se. But we were smart enough to know never to talk to the FBI, never to sit down and talk to the police, never incriminate ourselves, any of that nature. And so, of course, they attacked Rakim and basically held him in prison for six months where a federal judge agreed that him being in prison, of course, was unwarranted. It was against the law. And we're glad that our brother is home and free. And like I said, uh, we're paying very close attention to our actions. And just as much as the FBI is attempting to observe us, we're observing the activities of the FBI, not only here in Dallas, Texas, but around the country. And we hope that other comrades around the country observe our situation here in Dallas, Texas, and realize that they have to move a certain kind of way but also be educated and move with a sense of urgency because people around the country and around the world are observing our activities. Now, Texas is a state in which it's legal to openly carry firearms. Lots of states in this country are that way, especially in the South. But the legality of carrying firearms doesn't seem to apply to black people. Most definitely, most definitely. I can tell you a number of different times that we had been patrolling our community and the police would just basically try to jump on us real quick because they said they got a call or something to that extent. Somebody said they felt threatened, then they more or less vamp on us per se, and then we find ourselves running down the law uh, to the police, which they're very aware of. And at the end of the day, they find out that everything that we're doing is absolutely legal. And so that's the that's the thing. Black people can legally carry firearms. So this is, is very important. This is the, one of our primary things of why we were open carrying weapons in the manner that we were. Now, just keep in mind this. On April 2nd, 2016, a group of uh, right-wing militiamen known as BEAR, B-A-I-R, BEAR, came into South Dallas which is largely the African-American black community per se, with rifles and shotguns. Uh, we were able to organize over a couple thousand protesters, organizers, et cetera, however you want to terminalize it, to push Bear out. And we used our weapons. But the important thing that I want the listeners to understand and know, it was not about the UEP New Gun Club's weapons 
that threw Barry out. It was about the movement of the people. And so they had to understand it's not about the guns. Many people got guns and weapons and things of that nature. It's about using the guns and the weapons to organize the masses of black people and to get them to push out or divert any conflict that we may have. And so even though Bear, which is largely a white organization, a Trump-oriented organization, came to the South Dallas and attempted to intimidate black men and black women and children, et cetera, we were able to organize the people, push them out, and we used our weapon as microphones. And so this is an important thing that your listeners have to understand. Not only are weapons defense mechanisms, but secondly, we were able to successfully use weapons as microphones. And when we say microphones, we use those weapons as platforms to politically organize, politically educate black people. And that's something that we have successfully done and the process of doing currently. How many members does the gun club have in Dallas? And do you have other chapters? There are perhaps thousands of members of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club around the country. In Dallas, there are at least a couple of hundred, at least. I guess the, the thing of the matter is, is the gun club itself has become an educational platform for in regards to black gun rights. I myself personally have taken a step further and created the Huey P. New Gun Club Alpha. And what that's designed to do, that's the more or less designed of the ideology. Now, the important part of this, Mr. Ford, is that what we don't want to miss. Ideology is more important than the weapon. Ideology is more important than the weapon. I can't stress that as, as enough. Matter of fact, if you don't have that correct ideology and you have a weapon, then uh, you can go nowhere. I mean, that's 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 pointless. I mean, there's soldiers here in the United States, uh, in the Marine Corps, the Army, whatever uniform, they have weapons, but it's the ideology. And so with that being stated, I've created more within the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, a political club, which I call the Alpha Club, and it's designed to really focus on the ideals of Huey P. Newton, which is around the ideas of intercommunalism, understanding where Huey was at that particular time. And we think that that's very important because we've been known primarily for weapons. We've been known primarily for militancy per se. But again, as I stress, Mr. Ford, most importantly is ideology. In fact, ideology we feel is most important, more important than weapons per se. And we were attempting to spread that around to the different chapters locally, regionally, and nationally, different members around the country so that they can understand this and so they can understand what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. And that's more important than anything. Well, yes, let's address that. The gun club was inspired, you say, by the practices of the Black Panther Party, which had, of course, a 10-point program. But your organization has a 3 point program that deals entirely with police brutality and black-on-black violence and the need to be armed. That's a much more truncated program. Right, right, right. Yeah, so uh, yeah. with that being stated, uh, most definitely, uh, initially, we were uh, focusing primarily on those three points, specifically um, dealing with uh, fracture side or this whole notion about fracture side. 
course, police brutality, um, these sort of kind of things that were for us locally uh, issues. And primarily what, what must we understand in terms of the history of our development is that we were um, organizers within an organization called Dallas Communities Organizer for Change initially, and which is really policy oriented. And we kind of kind of sidestepped the policy orient programs and said, you know what, we need to take a more of a militant position. And ironically, this is around the time uh, that Michael Brown, I believe he was murdered August 9, 2014. We had did our first uh, public demonstration August 20, 2014 in South Dallas on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which was, I guess, a, a very timely situation. Uh, but yes, we initially started with more of a three-point program, per se, just to try to reach our people where they're at. But ultimately, we have to maintain the politics. And right now, in, in my personal opinion, I think that we have to study where Huey P. Newton, which was who was the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, was at, at, at his time. And so for me, I read very much so closely uh, the speeches of Huey, specifically the Boston College speech in 1970, specifically many of his writings, I think, is a great inspiration. I mean, the organization itself would not be called uh, the Huey P. Newton Gun Club had it not been some of the contradictions of Huey and many of his comrades. And we believe that those politics are very sacred and very important, and we should at least study them so that we can have an understanding of, again, what and why we're doing what we're doing. And as I stated, ideology is very important. Ideology is more important than the weapons. And you, of course, know perfectly well that the FBI in 1968 declared the Black Panther Party to be the greatest national security internal threat to the United States. Most definitely. I think what the, the Black Panther Party was dealing with at the time, of course, was its development on a national level. I think that that was very important in that development. But also, I think just understanding some of the works of Fred Hampton uh, Sr., which was important, was the, the Free Breakfast uh, for Children program. I think that was, I think the FBI also saw that as a threat. And it's programs, I feel, that relates to the people. It's programs, I feel, that they observe as threats uh, because Anytime that you're an organization and you have a vehicle that can relate to the, your target group, per se, obviously the opposition you know, is very critical. And I think the FBI is no different. They saw the programs of the Black Panther Party as being a threat. And so that's why, I guess, in understanding history from a history perspective, that's why I say, you know, I think that the ideology is important because we have weapons, right? But there's... Everybody has weapons these days. And you're talking about being in the state of Texas. There's millions of, of guns and weapons in the state of Texas. And so uh, with that being stated, what sets us apart? What sets us apart from some of the other groups is because we are working to understand revolutionary ideology and revolutionary platforms and things of that nature and working to be a student of history. And I think all of this is important, and this is important to the development of a collective organization, but also, uh, importantly as well, is uh, valuable to the development of the individual person. It's making yourself a better revolutionary so that you can carry out the mission of working for the people, working for the community, 
and ultimately being a part of that struggle that we understand is going on right now that's bringing down capitalism, that's fighting imperialism, and that's moving forward and ultimately to capitalism and imperialism is no more. That's what we're struggling against. And you say that the club has thousands of members just in Dallas alone, but those lists are secret because of the police attention that they bring. Most definitely, most definitely. There is a, a element of secrecy, of course. We're not going to divulge our actual members, per se. Uh, we think that history has taught us that in just our own history here per se locally history has taught us that it's best to try to keep things to a minimum where we can work and what we know we're good at and become good at that right and be a part of that cogwheel that is ultimately going to bring about revolutionary change and our focus is number one has been concerned about educating uh, the black community as it relates to weapons, things of that nature. And what's coming about now is this whole development around ideology. And we think that that's more important than guns, more important than, I guess, what a lot of people would say is walking around weapons and things of that nature and shooting targets, moving targets, things of that nature. It's more important. And so because of what happened to myself, two and three times in 2017 visited by the FBI and ultimately getting terminated from my job and what happened to Rakim and his apartment and ultimately his arrest and his detainment in federal custody for six months. We think it's best unless we know for sure that it's, it's a need to make things public. We don't make all our moves public. We just make some moves public. And we think that's important to move that way and encourage others to do the same, especially in this time when we have right-wing extremists as presidents. We have right-wing extremists basically running around doing what they want to do and basically shooting up schools and murdering innocent people in this country and are probably connecting with some of the right-wing extremists around the world, such as Golden Dawn and Greece and things of this nature as an inspiration. We think it's best to try to keep certain things at a minimum. It's very important. Yes. In regard to those mass shootings and the right-wing white militias, many folks, especially folks in the Democratic Party, think that that calls for a national disarming of the people. But you say that that's not going to work to actually disarm those who harm black folks, especially the police. And therefore, black people should make sure that they are armed, just like their opposition. Most definitely. As I was stating, we saw that as being the case on May 2nd, 2016, here in South Dallas, as I was stating there had attempted to come to South Dallas, and they came on. And it was only the fact that we was able to organize the community, we were able to drive them out. We think that, in a sense, we may have presented this type of action taking place in South Dallas, this type of brutality taking place in South Dallas, uh, because any time armed extremist right wing specifically come into a community that largely does not look like them, they're looking for nothing but trouble. So as I stated on that particular day, if Barry had come to South Dallas with a pen and pad, they would have been more received versus Chess Riggs, Kevlar's, and AR-15 style 
automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. They would have been more received. And so maybe this was a, a test run on that particular day, excuse me, April 2nd, 2016. Maybe they'll test run to see how black people will respond. And ultimately what they saw is that uh, we responded overwhelmingly in numbers, especially when we knew what, when they was coming. So what the Huey P. Newton Gun Club does is we train our members on certain tactics on what to do when these sort of things happen, how to properly cover and concealment, how to properly move, how to properly, if someone is shot, what to do. We have professional nurses and, and in some cases, doctors have, that have participated in some of our trainings just to you know, go in, in more detail and more understanding than what we probably would do. So, I, and so we're grateful for the health community for being part and parcel of that process to ultimately bring an air number one, the legitimacy of what we're doing, and secondly, just professionalism. And so these things we feel that the black community has to absolutely be prepared for. We have to be prepared for these uh, right-wing extremists to come into our community uh, announced in the case of Bear, but also unannounced and what to do and how to respond and how to get help and, you know, how to uh, make sure that our, our casualty level is at a minimum, if at all. And number one, maintain our ability to defend themselves. And what we have to understand is that a weapon is just a tool. It's just a tool to defend yourself. It, it's a tool. There's a number of different tools, but a weapon is a great tool. And so if someone is opposing you with a weapon, you can be a, a quote-unquote so-called good guy with a gun. And so I think that those exist, and those definitely exist within our membership, and that's something that we very much so believe in. We believe in self-defense, and we have to. That was Yafeo Balagon of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, speaking from Dallas. In New York City, a coalition of organizations is planning a new series of actions against police oppression in the city's mass transit system. Sharon Jones of Bronxites for NYPD Accountability says the protesters will rally under the banner FTP. On January 31st, Bronx Sites for NYPD Accountability, also known as Y Accountability, will enter the streets once again in the FTP coalition, meaning F the police, uh, feed the people, F the politicians, F the prisons. And we will be sustaining our indignation to police brutality in the transit system, the vote to add an additional 500 MTA police officers to our system, the brutality that our children have faced traveling within the subway system, and the violence committed against street vendors, black and brown people in the subway system, and also the lack of accessibility for folks that have different abilities. So that's what we're out there for. Well, I know that you like to catch the police by surprise, so you might not want to say where these actions are going to occur, but tell us about the nature of those actions. So we believe in a diversity of tactics. So we will not disclose exactly what formation these actions would take place, but we encourage folks to speak out about their concerns regarding police brutality. We also encourage people to do those speak outs in the subway system, out in the street. We encourage the youth. This is another big element 
for our previous FTP one and two actions. There was a very large contingent of black student organizations throughout the city coming together. And we want to encourage that youth and intergenerational coalition of people standing against police brutality in the city, particularly in the transit system. And which of the issues that you raise in these actions resonates most heavily and with what kinds of people? Well, I think people overall detest the volume of police in the train stations, number one. And number two, the targeting of black and brown people, black and brown youth, black and brown vendors in the transit system. No one should go to jail for not having 275. No child should beg police for not having 275. So people are really concerned, like, look, we need to take a look differently at what transportation needs to look like in the city. How do we make sure folks that are impoverished have a way to get around that does not subject them to interrogation, ticketing, criminalization, or violence? And I think that's really what the community is concerned with. You don't want to send your 14 or 15-year-old to school during the day and be interrogated by police or beaten by them just in transit. That is ridiculous. In terms of fares, you're talking about public transportation as a public service. But the Metropolitan Transit Authority, which runs the subways and the buses, well, their board is made up mostly of corporate executives. Yes, and these corporate executives are responsible for not only this direct violence to the community through the use of the NYPD and now these additional 500 MTA cops. What they're also doing is expanding the police state by Uber surveillance. Hopefully your listeners have noticed these cameras that are in the MTA system that have the capability of facial recognition technology. There's also now a tap and go system that is also surveilling you using your taps because all of that is connected to your bank accounts and et cetera. So all of these dots, are connecting. So folks on the MTA board that don't even ride the train at all, right? They take Ubers to work. They're making decisions about poor people, black people, brown people, disabled people, young people, people looking for work, people that have court dates, mothers taking their small children to daycare. These are the corporate oligarchs making decisions about us and actually engaging in expanding the police state. And and what we want to add is this is regardless of political party. This is not a Trump thing. This is the expansion of the police state, period. All of the things that are happening in the city of New York are under Democratic leadership. So this is not a Trump thing. And this same Democratic leadership has added hundreds of new police specifically for the subways. Yes. Some folks attended the MTA board meeting, and actually there was some police repression in the board meetings where folks objected to the addition of 500 new cops instead of making train stations accessible. All train stations do not have elevator access, ramp access, escalator access to assist people with different abilities. However, there's an investment 
in police in the transit system. This is mind-boggling to the general public, not only on a fiscal level, but on a common sense and a morality level. So this is where the FTP coalition continues to push abolition. Police abolition must reach all levels of the community in our understanding and and in in the way we compute what is happening to us. There's an idea out there that black youths are apathetic and apolitical, but that's not been your experience. Absolutely not. The FTP coalition, we're a formation of groups that have past events that have come together. So this coalition has also shed light on all of the artwork coming from the youth, all of the exhibition of resistance coming from the youth independently of this coalition. But these exhibitions that the FTP coalition does of resistance lets the youth know it is okay to resist. If they don't see 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds saying, you know what, we're not taking this mess lying down, we need to make sure and give our youth the green light. They know exactly what's going on. Any conversation thread on why accountabilities, social media, why accountability, WA tweets, or on swipe it forward social media, you will see those conversations happening with young people and they have a critical and important grasp of what is happening to them and what is yet in store for them if this situation doesn't stop. I'm sure you've heard from some folks that your use of F the police doesn't set the right civil tone of political discourse. Yes, Mr. Ford, it absolutely does set the wrong tone for political discourse. And because what we're not doing is discourse. We are fighting back. Discourse, as far as neoliberals are concerned, is their comfort zone. It's their security blanket when we join the conversation and have town halls and refrain from profanity and sit on panels. Of course, that's the right tone for discourse, but FTP Coalition believes that the fact-finding stage is over. We have concluded that the police state must be stopped, so there's no discourse about it. We're hitting the street. That's the right tone for us. Yes, and when the police beat your butt on the street, uh, (laughs) they're setting the tone they want to set. And you know what? I think that that's definitely fair. For FTP 1, We had two arrests, and those two arrests happened really at the tail end of the action. For FTP2, because the NYPD was so embarrassed that a group of 3,000 people completely took over downtown Brooklyn and the Barclays Center and orchestrated a mass turnstile hop at the White Street Skimmerhorn Station at downtown Brooklyn, the repression was very real and distinct on November 22nd for FTP2. And there were 58 arrests. Our jail support stayed, myself included, at one police plaza until every person that was given a desk appearance ticket was released. And also when everyone else, the other remaining 12 people, I believe, were released the following day. We understand that this is a fight. And during that fight, the oppressive forces that have uh, uh, managed to amass 
thank you to the 1033 program, militarized weaponry against us, we know that some of our people will get hurt. But this is what we must do. We have to take a risk to take a stand because our oppressors will not concede because of discourse. And have those arrests dimmed the enthusiasm of the young people that you're trying to attract to these actions? Absolutely not. I think uh, young people understand that it's a throwdown, that it is a throwdown. Many young people, by the time they are 15 or 16 years old, have seen some type of brutality committed, whether it's against them directly, a family member or friend or schoolmate, etc., and again, these exhibits of exhibitions of resistance are important and empowering to them. FTP Coalition, uh, January 31st, look out for information regarding our continued resistance against police brutality. You're able to follow Why Accountability across social media. We're on Facebook. We're at WA underscore tweets on Twitter. We're at Y underscore accountability on Instagram. Also, we recommend as principal organizers of Swipe It Forward to follow Swipe It Forward across social media. When you exit the train, use your unlimited to swipe someone in on your way out. Maybe forfeit a discretionary expense to swipe someone in. You see police in the station. Don't be a bystander, be an upstander and get their butts out of that station and let's stop this Uber surveillance and brutality. And the FTP coalition is in solidarity with international and global movements against police repression and a corporate globalism across this planet. That was Sharon Jones of Bronxites for NYPD Accountability. Anti-police brutality protesters often point to the collaboration between U.S. cops and their counterparts in apartheid Israel. But author Stuart Schrader says the problem is a lot deeper than that. He's written a new book titled Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transform American Policing. It details how the U.S has learned to suppress rebellions at home and abroad. From Native American extermination and suppression of slave revolts to becoming the policemen of the world. In Badges Without Borders, I show that this multi-directional set of police transfers of technologies and personnel and ideas has been going on for quite a long time. It really got off the ground at the end of World War II, and that's where my book begins, when the United States occupied the defeated countries from World War II, Germany and Japan. And that experience of occupation in places like Germany and Japan brought some of the most important U.S. police experts abroad. And in the experience of occupation, what they did was try to totally transform and rethink the kind of organizational infrastructure and technological infrastructure of policing in these countries. So what that meant was that they tried to get rid of some of the nefarious characters who had been running the police forces. 
The problem was that they very quickly realized that the Cold War was setting in after World War II, and the nefarious characters in Germany and Japan and Korea as well, who were the enemy of the United States during World War II, they were also the enemy of communists. So with the onset of the Cold War, the United States realized, well, actually, some of these folks might remain useful to us. And so you had U.S. police leaders come to the conclusion that although it was probably not a great idea to employ, say, ex-Nazis in the reformed police forces, they would do it because the fight against communism was such an important geopolitical goal. On the other hand, they also were quite explicit that no communists should be employed in these new police forces that they were creating in in places like Germany. And so these police leaders, as I said, they were some of the top policing experts in the United States. And some of them returned back to the United States and continued in their illustrious careers running you know, university programs for police, writing policing textbooks and so forth. And a great number of them also stayed abroad and continued to pursue fighting the Cold War in many other countries around the globe. And that's the kind of main piece of the book that I focus on, the police assistance provided to 52 countries around the globe up until the mid-1970s. Yes, the United States government had been waging war against communists and other radicals in the U.S. since the early part of the 20th century, and then found common cause with Nazis and Japanese militarists in that global fight against radicals. Exactly. And in that kind of sense, the term Red Squad takes on a different meaning. When we speak of Red Squads, we refer to particular units of local police departments that target radicals. But in a real sense, the United States is operating a global kind of Red Squad, a global counterinsurgency. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and what's interesting is that The U.S. experts who went abroad to try to bolster the capacities for policing, for maintaining what they called internal security around the globe, yes, they did create forces that we would understand as red squads, kind of specialized forces that were meant to gather intelligence and kind of run secret operations and use informants and so forth. But they also held a belief that is quite important, I think, for us to understand, which is that in order to prevent communist revolution in so-called third world countries, what the United States needed to do was just introduce regular old U.S. style policing. Yes, you needed specialized squads, but you also needed the ability to gather information about everyday people. You needed to make sure that traffic ran smoothly. You needed to be able to, if traffic wasn't running smoothly, effect a traffic stop, engage in a search of a car, engage in stop and frisk on the street. All of these everyday policing activities that we would expect to see on American streets, in cities and towns, these U.S. experts were bringing to third world countries and third world police forces under the idea that 
in order to prevent a communist revolution, you can't only focus on the insurgents or the subversives or the radicals. Of course, they're going to get a lot of attention, but you also need to maintain a focus on the broad general population. You need to treat the general population as at risk of coming under the sway of communists. And therefore, you have to keep an eye on them. You have to collect basic information about them. So one of the things, for example, that these experts would do would be to introduce very basic technologies like ID cards. You know, most Americans have some form of ID, driver's license, and so forth today. In the 1950s and 60s, the United States introduced these types of IDs that would be standardized and durable records of people's identity. They introduced them to countries from Venezuela to Vietnam, all across the globe. And the idea, therefore, was if there is a record of everybody, it's easy to keep tabs on everybody. And now we understand how in recent decades we've learned that the CIA and the other U.S. intelligence agencies have been spying on virtually everyone in the world. Exactly. And of course, today, the technological capabilities are much greater than existed in the period that I've studied. But I think that many of the figures who I look at, who, of course, many of them had backgrounds with the FBI, some of them were actually working for the CIA, although under cover of being affiliated with a different agency, they would all recognize the underlying process of gathering massive amounts of data and information about the population, but they would be really thrilled at the kind of technological capabilities that exist now that didn't exist when they were working. Many of us date our understanding of the counterinsurgency nature of U.S. policing to the Black Panther Party, which identified the police as an occupation army in the Black community. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I begin my book with a quote from Bobby Seale in 1967 in the third issue of the Black Panther newspaper, where he makes a very strong and very clear analogy between the war of occupation that the United States was then engaged in in Southeast Asia and the policing of Black neighborhoods within the United States. And he, in fact, in that article, says that basically just as the resistance in Vietnam is taking such a strong and vigorous stand against this occupation, there will soon be a similar vigorous resistance happening in the United States. And he called this article the Long Hot Summer, and it came out before the, the Long Hot Summer of 1967. And so in that way, Bobby Seale, like many other black radicals of that moment, were extremely prescient. And what I've tried to do in my book is to kind of take this analysis that they offered at the time and really substantiate it with the access that we have today. Historians have access to all kinds of documents, declassified records, and so forth that they did not have access to at the time. And so I've basically you know, followed the lead of thinkers like Seal, and I've found that, well, yes, they were exactly right in their analysis, and we now have the 
documents from the White House, the National Security Council, and so forth to prove it. And then in 1968, we see the advent of the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, the LEAA. Many of us date that as the beginning of the mass black incarceration state, with an emphasis, of course, on counterinsurgency. Yeah, this is very important. And increasingly, we're starting to get a fuller picture of all of the activities of the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. And one contribution that I offer in Badges Without Borders is to show that when the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration was starting to become a proposal, an idea in the minds of policymakers, lawmakers in Washington in the middle of the 1960s, they very explicitly drew on their knowledge of what the United States was doing overseas with the U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of Public Safety, which was the body that sent this police training and expertise abroad. They said, look, we need to bring the resources and know-how that we have in Washington to the states and municipalities around the United States so that they can increase their law enforcement capabilities. And the way to do it is to do exactly what we're doing in the third world, which is to take the resources and know-how that we have in Washington and delivering it to you know, South Vietnam, Guatemala, so on and so forth. So they were explicit about that analogy. And so the LEAA, in many ways, replicates domestically what the United States was already doing overseas in the guise of counterinsurgency, in the guise of preventing communist revolution. And what happened with the LEAA was that from 1968 until the time of Reagan, when it was shut down and then replaced with something even bigger, it gave billions of dollars to police forces, to jails, to courts around the United States. And in many cases, this money went directly to the kind of most repressive capabilities of the police. In the first year, because of course there was a great fear of further unrest, a lot of money went to so-called riot control, meaning body armor, chemical weapons, and the like. These were all used in repressive modes. And as the 70s wore on and computer technologies developed and improved. The LEAA funded increased databases and capabilities of, again, keeping track of people, keeping an eye on criminal suspects and so forth. So I found in my research that there is a strong connection between the LEAA, which we understand to be crucial in setting the process in motion to foster mass incarceration, and the overseas effort of the United States to bolster policing in third world countries. Liberals usually criticize U.S. foreign policy as being eager to make alliances with repressive governments abroad, to find fascists overseas and then cozy up to them. But the real story is that the United States actively creates repressive governments overseas as part of its global counterinsurgency policy. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The United States, its liberal officials have a tendency to pretend like they're naive, and maybe they actually are, maybe they're not pretending, but to play innocent when these activities of repression, you know, all the way up to extreme violence and mass murder occur, as if the United States had no idea this was going to happen. And, you know, when you look at the historical record, when you when you look at the archives of the U.S. national security state, you will find that, yes, there are in some cases these officials who say, hey, what is going on? We, we are now supporting extreme repression. This was not what we were supposed to do. But on the other hand, there are always officials who know exactly what's going to happen when you put these repressive technologies and capabilities in the hands of the governments abroad. And they're under no illusions about where it's going to lead. And ultimately, during the Cold War, as many people have argued, the necessity from the U.S. perspective of preventing communist revolution authorized all manner of activities. Now, was communist revolution actually going to occur in many of the places where the repression happened? Well, that's hard to say. And what is somewhat surprising that I found in my research is that many of the security officials who are involved in counterinsurgency are actually quite explicit in saying that if repression gets really severe and if violence by police agencies and security agencies comes to seem like it's totally wanton and unrestrained, that will cause the kind of political mobilization that could actually lead to the overthrow of the government. In other words, the very people who are responsible for bringing repressive capacities to other countries are themselves aware that too much repression is likely to lead to a great amount of resistance. So that's an interesting wrinkle. And so they have a number of ways of trying to deal with this. And one that I explain at some length in my book is that they think of tear gas as a technology that might actually allow the control and suppression of crowds and so-called riots without actually killing people. It will be very unpleasant for people to inhale CS, the chemical tear gas, but it won't kill them. And so this is their idea of how to make repression more effective without engendering the same type of resistance that say, just shooting people down in the street might, which, of course, that also happened. And so current today activists can conclude from your book that the U.S. collaboration with Israel, for example, is not a situation in which U.S. police are picking up bad habits and policies from the Israelis, but that this is an imperial two-way street in which the United States has been in the lead for generations. Yes, that's exactly right. The United States has been in the lead. And I think the major shift that happens after the mid-1970s, when there is a great amount of political mobilization and protest activity that tries to rein in some of the excesses of the national security state, what ends up happening is that the United States starts to be willing to share a little bit. And so Whereas during the period that I focus on from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, when you look at the present, in the present, 
you have countries like Israel, you have private corporations like Dincorp, who are also taking on the role of spreading around techniques and technologies of security of repression. In the period I look at, the United States jealously guarded its own kind of primacy in this area. And now there's a little bit more openness to a certain kind of entrepreneurialism by security actors, whether those entrepreneurs are literal corporations or other countries. Now the United States sort of shares the field in a way that it didn't during the Cold War. So we now have counterinsurgency as free enterprise. Exactly. Today, what you see is that just as during the Cold War, there is an interest in bolstering the policing capabilities of other countries, now the United States will oftentimes employ corporations to help out in the task. And so, for example, take a look at, at a place like Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, after the United States invaded and pushed the Taliban out of power, one key task that the occupation of Afghanistan held was to increase the local security forces. Well, at first, the United States didn't want to take that job on itself, so it used one of its allied countries. It, it used Germany. Germany then didn't seem quite up to the task of building up a really strong police force that would maintain control over Afghanistan. So then the United States said, well, okay, let's get a corporation in. And so they hired DINCORP. DINCORP made a whole lot of money in the process, but never quite met the metrics of security that the United States had proposed. So then the United States said, okay, well, this corporation isn't up to the task. Maybe we need to use our own forces. So some combination of the Department of Defense and the State Department get involved and on and on and on. And there's this you know, continual series of attempts to build up the capabilities of the Afghan National Police, none of which really seem to be quite successful. But I think in that series, you get a flavor of how this works today. There's reliance on allies, there's reliance on corporations, and there's also the United States offering its own expertise using its own officials, its own trainers. And you see this process happening in, in many places around the globe today. And the one thing I would say about the kind of free market aspect of it is that these corporations that get involved, they know that there is a lot of money at stake and they are quite happy to offer their services for massive payments that will, will result for training police of various stripes, whether it's just everyday police or border police or narcotics police or so forth. And some of these corporations, in fact, have their roots in the very officials that I look at going back to the height of the Cold War, because in the 1970s, when the U.S. got out of the business briefly of training other countries' police, some of the people who I look at, these advisors who were overseas, they just started their own corporations to do this work. So there's a relatively direct line from the period when the United States had a monopoly on it 
in the height of the Cold War to the contemporary kind of free market vision of security assistance where you have some of the um, corporations today growing out of the expertise of the earlier period. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>